Welcome to Out in the Wilds, a podcast by two married to each other ladies where we break down all things queer and unqueer in each episode of The Wilds. My name is Rachel, and as always, I'm joined by my wife and the love of my life, Allie. Hi, everyone. First of all, like, are we all okay? Like, did we make it? Uh, Maybe. I still, I don't even know. I don't even know if I'm, I don't know. There's a small part of me that's like stuck in their cover of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zero's home. Yeah. And another small part of me that might be in the bar where Shelby is singing. Well, you've watched that scene like 19 times now. You know what? It's just a great scene. But what episode are we talking about today? Because I do not think it's episode eight. No. Today we are talking about season two, episode one also known as a combo day 30 and day one. Which the combo days I think are going to be an interesting thing for us to talk about because there's something a little bit weirdly unsettling about them in that everything always feels a bit off kilter through the season. It's one of the reasons why we went back to watch uh, the pilot episode because it was a little bit easier to kind of wrap our heads around what happened for the boys as a part of their day one when like the day one of the girls is very fresh there's a lot of parallels that are made between the two islands throughout the series and throughout this season in particular but they're always at very different stages and so it's it's hard to keep in mind too that like they're in different stages also because of the place and the time they're in is very different And in response to that, and I want to save us some content for later on, but I just want to issue one fuck you, if I can. Oh. Fuck you, Susan. Oh. Period. (laughs) We'll come back to that. Okay. But just fuck you. Okay. Cool, 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 cool. I think like that's a good spot to move into our uh, classic spoiler content and language warning. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So language wise... Uh, we're going to swear. There's an explicit warning on this episode, as there are on all episodes, and we will probably swear. We will quote the actors swearing slash the characters swearing, and we're just going to swear a bunch. Around content, The Wilds deals with a lot of sensitive content, a lot of potentially triggering content, and so we usually like to give a warning to anyone heading into an episode that because we are a podcast dedicated to talking about The Wilds, we will also be discussing sensitive content. In particular, this episode has a suicide trigger warning attached to it. And then finally, around spoilers. Last season, we did a very ambitious thing where we tried to stay spoiler-free throughout the entire season. And so we really uh, <laughs> really worked hard to not spoil things that were coming up. We are not going to be able to do that for this season. So please note that this is a spoiler-inclusive <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what would you, what would you call that? This is a spoiler. This is going to be a spoilery podcast. We're still going to try and really focus um, our discussion on like what is happening with us. But the way that stories are told in season two are a little bit less linear. When we sat down and sort of mapped out what our episodes were going to look like, what we wanted to focus on, it just became really quickly apparent that we weren't going to be able to do it spoiler free this time. I hope everyone's okay with that. So I'm kind of excited to get into it. Just letting people know kind of what the format of our episode is going to be today. We're going to work through some sort of arc analysis. So we're going to talk through elements of the girls' island and the boys' island, the experiment. Uh, We're also going to talk through some pieces around comparisons between season one and season two. Afterwards, we're going to give some overall sort of season two uh, reactions and feelings, talk about how... I think we have some some complicated feelings about it. So we're excited to kind of like talk and, and... discuss those with you all 
And then we're going to do some of our special segments like quote of the week and deserted island partner of the week. Our field note of the week will be mixed in there somewhere too. And that's sort of what's coming up for you in this episode. Well, then let's just get into it. Well, I think first off the hop, when we got onto this, I asked, is everyone okay? And the reason I was asking was not only because of Shoni and Leotin and Leachil, but also the gay stars have aligned. Taylor Swift is playing, everybody! <laughs> I was so delighted that Amazon Money, a little bit of a Taylor Swift song, montaged with leaving where we left off on the island with the shark attack. It was a great montage. Also great song choice. Oh, just beautiful. And I guess bottom line, it opens up with the girls talking to the detectives about what happens. We see that eventually Nora is gone and Dot finds Rachel and people move very quickly, most namely to cauterize the wound, which Dot ends up doing. There's something really beautiful about the way that they decided to do this. Um, it actually might be one of my, my favorite little segments of anything cross season. It was just the way that they shot it, the interspersing of like all of the girls' voices. There's some like beautiful lines in there. We get Tony's, we couldn't see them, but we could hear them line. There's also pieces in here um, where Tony and Fatten are talking about time sort of stood still. So it felt both like a second and like an hour. So that kind of finite and infinite balance was in there too. And there's just this wonderful level of emotion that they all have when talking about what was very clearly a super traumatic event for them. And they had this openness, even when talking about it with the detectives that we'd never seen them have in that sort of bunker space before. I don't know, it made me feel all the feels and it took me, just like you said, right back to the end of season one. And it was just this beautiful bridge between the two seasons. And I think critically, it really sets us up for that contrast between the girls and the boys islands. Not only does Leah talk about how there's no other way to describe it, but that they became a family, but she reflects that it was only took them three weeks. But on the other hand, we also continue to see Leah downplay her suspicions. And so while she talks about it in this really unifying way, interspersed with the flashbacks, we see it how it was also a divisive scenario as well, with Leah and Fatten going to the pit and seeing that the pit is no longer there, for example. Well, even when the scene happens and they're cauterizing the wound, we talked about this a little bit when we did our trailer episode, but all of the girls are sort of grouped around Rachel and helping to hold her down while Dot is heating up the axe. But if you look, Leah's just kind of standing to the side, sort of alone. But it's such a potent byproduct of where she came from in that moment. And so she came from being in that pit and coming out and being ready to confront Nora to confront and sort of validate all of her suspicions that she had, knowing that there was something bigger going on. And then to have that moment sort of like snatched from her, there's almost a look of shock kind of on her. And she doesn't quite know how to wrap things around because she, she was just coming to this culmination of everything she had been working towards and building towards only to have that just, the rug was kind of pulled out from under her. And to be fair to Leah as well, this episode mostly takes place on day 30. So after we jump from the shark attack, we go, you know, a week later, essentially. And it takes her until then to follow up the questions with Rachel about Nora. That's actually a pretty long time, in island time especially, right? When days can mean months, it seems like sometimes. So, you know, she does exercise some restraint, but certainly you see in the design of the layout of the girls in that moment kind of where her head is at in particular. I think this is going to be an ongoing theme for us discussing this season because 
there's a lot of moments when Leah shows a lot of restraint. She shows a lot of self-awareness. She really holds herself back from pushing things too hard in a way that we had seen her do in season one. And it's such an interesting flip to really understand that and to think about the ways that is that connected to um, Fatten calling her out for pushing Rachel, which we'll talk about later? Is it connected to wanting to be a little bit more careful when she treads based on what happened with Nora? I'm not sure. Part of me think it just comes from a bigger self-awareness and there's a lot of growth that Leah has. She definitely has like an up and down journey this season, but it also really highlights all of these places where she has sort of changed the way that she approaches things, but still gets like harmed or put down by others and I'm sure I have some feelings I have some feelings that there was some unfair stuff that happened to Leah this season and I'm sure that I will work through them um as we go through the episodes no I wholeheartedly agree and I think that will be something that we come back to is it's this question of who do we protect and who do we care for and something I wrote down was Leah versus Rachel versus Tony versus Martha Mm. you know four characters that have really strong arcs where they're dealing with some like big emotions and the ways in which all of them are cared for slightly different and the way that all of their feelings are held in in different regards. I would like to say we talked about this um, during our trailer episode, but the moment at the pit is so killer. I like love it, love it, love it, love it. Just like the, the emotion that like Sarah Pigeon brings into it and just the idea of coming to this pit and it being filled in i still have 90 questions uh number one it would have taken heavy machinery to do this number two the ground never settled and what i know from filling in pits is the ground settles a little bit and it never settles and also it was packed down like they used one of those packing machines which somewhere in the back of my head i know what it's called but you do it to earth it's just called the compactor oh yeah a compactor (laughs) (laughs) i was like somewhere in my head i know what this is called um but i just think it was a It's a great twist. I'm a little disappointed we didn't get to see any backflashes of them doing it. I just assume it was probably like a lot of logistics to film something like that for something that you could also just fill the pit or just show ground that doesn't necessarily have to be the pit filled. But uh, anyways, that was just, uh, I was excited about it when I saw the trailer and I was just as excited about it as a part of this opening montage because sort of tied everything up and set everything up for the way that things were going to advance this episode. Well, I think it goes back to what we were just talking about, too, which is same pit, Fatten and Leah, different outcome, same pit, Fatten and Shelby, right? Shelby notices the dirt. She can tell it's different. And the way that that reinforces Fatten in that moment versus when Leah goes there, they're just not looking for it. Fatten's not looking for it because she hasn't seen it, despite how she's supportive. And so, again, we'll talk more about this as the season goes on, but I think that's a really good example of the balance between who is cared for and how. I think there's like one other thing I just want to say about kind of the shark attack scene is there's this sort of beautiful sentiment about the ways that the girls took this terrible thing that happened, this terrible thing with, you know, Nora being lost at sea, lost at sea, (laughs) but, and, uh, and Rachel losing her hand and they used it as, a way to become sort of blood bound to each other, it tightened the relational connections between them. And that's something you can feel in season two. You can feel the shift in that dynamics between them all. You can see it in the way that certain girls who maybe didn't interact with others as much in season one now have like really strong, really powerful interactions. Like there's just so much more of a sense of a collective in season two, even than we had at the end of season one. 
So we're gonna stay with the girls for a little bit longer. We're now at day 30. Essentially, this whole episode is gearing up for them to move, and they're moving to get away a little bit from where they lost Nora, but also to be more inland, which we talked about extensively last season, to be more protected and to be closer. It's the smart move to make. Yes. I have strong feelings about it. So as I said, most of this episode is really gearing them up for for that move, and so... We see a lot of pairs, some pairs that we already love together, like Shelby and Tony, as well as Dot and Fatten, but also some other neat pairs, such as Fatten and Martha, as well as Leah and Rachel later on. I mean, they know their audience. We start off with Tony and Shelby, who are in the midst of this classic, like, lesbian love bubble. I don't know, like, if any, I've been a part of one. (laughs) I think a lot of our listeners (laughs) have been in it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, mostly just like they're in that very early stages of the relationship and they're just like obsessed with each other. Um, mostly. (laughs) You're still in it. (laughs) True. Um, but there's a lot of really important things that happen as a part of this that sort of set up a lot of the, the following season. There's a lot of mention to mourning Nora throughout this episode. And so this is our first kind of piece of that. Um, And so Tony and Shelby are talking about the loss of Nora, but they're also talking about the cracks that have started to appear between Shelby's relationship with God. And that is something that Shelby will continue to explore, but it also sets the stage for what is quite frankly, a very religious overture season. Um, There's lots of like parallels to religion that are made that I know we're going to talk about. There's lots of connections. There's lots of references that are built throughout almost every single episode across both islands, across the bunker. It's like a, a really like heavy sort of like religious overtones kind of season. And so this is that sort of first scene that really sets the stage that that is going to be this huge theme that's going to exist. Things I was excited by in this particular sequence of the girls' narrative. First of all, I love seeing Fatten's growing leadership. Yeah. She was like a real leader in this in a lot of respects, and it's such a fun parallel. I love the conversation that she has with Leah about collecting the woods and that disappointment. It mirrors exactly on to the Fron conversation, but seeing Fatten be the one that is taking inventory and finds that book of Martha and is really leading that charge with like carrying the wood, even though she's not stronger. It's something we knew that she had, but seeing it further is really, really neat. It's something that we always knew she could grow into. She just never really got the space to do it in season one. And so I think a lot of her focus, especially in the second half, was on caring for Leah. And so it's so exciting in this to see her have like more of these relationships with people and these strong relationships with people. It's just a direction I really, really loved for her. Similarly with Martha, two things about her. Number one, she finds out about Tony and Shelby. And two, we see her really embrace her hunting skills in episode one. Of course, there's an arc to this that we go through later in the season, but we love to see it for her. Yeah, it's a... If there's anyone who's joining us who's a new listener, um, I'm Indigenous. And so, like, when she gets, I don't know, when, like, Martha's just out, like, trapping and stuff, there's this, like, weird thing that exists for Indigenous people where we romanticize, like, 
a lot of us romanticize like trapping and things like that and like being on the land and living off the land and like and like being able to like go back to those sort of traditional practices and so like just the excitement that you get when like Martha's out there doing it and you're like yes <laughs> you're like this is it even though a lot of why she's doing it is wrapped up and triggers her trauma and ends up being a bit harmful for her there is a bit of an empowerment piece that exists in there in being able to take on that role also for the group um, and to be able to take on a bit more of a caring role for the group for Martha, as opposed to a being cared for role in the group. There's also something interesting with Tony, Martha, and Shelby in the way that they always create this trio almost, right? There's there's so many ways that they carry that through in season one, but the shifting dynamics that they always have within that triangle are really fascinating. We started off in season one with their obviously being like Tony and Martha were a pair and then Shelby was kind of the third person a little bit on the outskirts when they first were on the plane. And that relationship dynamic shifted to being a little bit more centered around Martha and Shelby being, you know, building this like new friendship and bonding and stuff and Tony feeling like she was on the outs. And then at the start of season two, that relationship has shifted again to now where you have Tony and Shelby who are in this like kind of new fresh shiny as Martha would say relationship and Martha who's kind of sitting on the edge of that and Martha is this like kind warm-hearted loving person who just wants her best friend to be happy but you know that that shift in dynamic always causes a little bit of friction yeah and to me parts of this felt a little bit odd if I can say Sometimes it felt like they forgot the Shelby and Martha relationship being so strong and it felt like that part of the trio was like severed in a way that you wouldn't think it would have happened in that way. And I know that the relationship now between Tony and Shelby is probably stronger in a lot of ways than the relationship between Shelby and Martha ever was. And of course, Tony and Martha's relationship is super strong. But to me, that part felt a little bit off, I think. No, and I think that's 100% fair because you have that moment in, I think it's the next episode, where Martha snaps at Shelby a little bit for thinking that Tony tells her things. She has like a bit of a natural reaction to, A, number one, finding out that people knew before her. And I don't think she's mad that Tony and Shelby are together. I think she just feels left out that she wasn't told. But also like navigating this new shifting in dynamic and relationship. Also keeping in mind that like up until this point, Martha kind of thought that Tony hated Shelby, so it would have been a little bit shocking and unsettling to her, too, in that sense. But I think there's this bigger narrative that exists between them in that they can never be a triangle where everything is even. It's like always someone gets left out and that person doesn't receive necessarily the same amount of care as they would if they were part of that primary duo. So there's always this question about who is given care. And for a lot of this season, it's Martha who kind of gets put to the side. You still see these beautiful moments with her and Tony, but people maybe aren't watching her as closely as they should or noticing some of the things she's struggling with as closely as they would if they were spending more of their time with her, I guess. Yeah, it's like an isosceles triangle. There we go. Thank you. I knew you were going to come up with a word for it. Well, and I think I just want to stop you, though, because like I love you. But also, uh, I don't want to be doing trios episodes. Like I just feel <laughs> I can feel it coming. You're like, we did duos last year, Rach. Let's do trios. And I'm going to I'm going to shut it down right here, right now. 
I'll talk to you after eight episodes. We'll see who wins this. <laughs> I'm gonna wait. Remember this moment. <laughs> I also just like it's so funny when Tony and Shelby are talking, and you know Tony is surprised that Martha found out that they were together, and I was like, the two of you have just been traipsing around the woods having sex, while Martha's like clearly out there hunting and trapping and traveling around quietly. Like in what world, like your radius that you're traveling cannot be that big. So I just like died when Martha said that like that they should give her spot on the bed to Shelby because I was just like, they both just looked so shocked. And I was like, in what world is this shocking? No wonder Fatten's just walking around like, I'm aware, I know, I know everything. No, for sure. And, and speaking of Fatten and Martha, I just wanna talk a bit about a new literature. <laughs> it's really exciting actually, because like we spend a lot of time with the nature of her. And I'm just like really excited for a, a steamy beach read. Yeah, I mean, they're excited for it too. We'll dig into this a lot later, but I wanted to make a couple of comments. Number one, in the field notes of this season, we learn a lot about Martha's grandmother, which hats off. It's just so great to continue to see Indigenous characters developed, even when there's not that direct backstory component of it. So being able to learn more about her family through those field notes is just beautiful. And the second thing is that as part of that field note, they talk about how Martha and her grandma like read these books while sunning together. And it's just this cutest little image of them drinking Arnold Palmer's and having a grand old time. I know. I love like I love the field notes that are really deep, but I also love the like cute warm ones like that. So to also say, Allie and I have not read this book yet. Like, there might be a small chance we might. I don't know. If the book of her was a real book, we would read it. Was it is it called the book of her? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Would we read it? I guess we would read it. We probably it would read we would it. Want, We're like that. We would want to know, yeah. We would be going on a road trip. We'd be listening to it, written and narrated by old, old pants. <laughs> what? I his name, Jeff. Oh, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> he would absolutely narrate his own book. He would narrate his own book. He recorded on his fucking flip. Anyways. So we, fucking we, flip. we don't need to go back there. But critically, we haven't read this Nora Roberts book yet. I don't actually know if I've ever read a Nora Roberts book. I've never read Nora I'm not Roberts really a reading book. guy. I'm kind of like Dot. But when I was looking it up and trying to get a sense of what is this book like? Because, you know, you just never trust these writers. It seems that one of those big themes of the books is sisterhood. And I think that's really beautiful and just a really subtle way to tie the book in with their journey and with the broader arc of this season for the girls. Well, that is really nice. It's like a nice surprise that they're able to center a bunch of stories around. There's like more things that are revealed about characters who discussing this book and things. And it's uh, it's like it's like when we found Marcus and it just added this like extra element to the group. It's like the book is the season's Marcus. Although Marcus is still around and kicking. On a less lighthearted, lovely note, uh, there's obviously some really, really heavy things that are happening with Rachel. She spends a lot of time sitting on the beach, kind of staring at the ocean. And we hear sort of Dot talk about um, that they've sort of made a schedule of rotating responsibilities to take care of her. I do want to come back to chat about rotating responsibilities in a minute, but I just want to really kind of center this thought around what is happening with Rachel and what Rachel's dealing with. Obviously, she has like this twofold sort of grief process going on. One, which is the loss of her hand, but the other, which is the more potent one, is the loss of her sister. And it's so hard to watch. Number one, because Rain... Edwards really brings it to the crushed screen. It. Yeah, she crushed it. As she crushes it this whole season, Rachel has one of my favorite arcs of the whole season. It's everything I wanted from her 
from season one, like from for her character. I feel like I got so much of that in season two. But it's it's this feeling that she can't even fully mourn the loss of her arm or her hand. And we talked about how hard that would be for her. Number one, connected to swimming. But number two, just the, the loss of something like that, especially in this like survival mode would have been so terrible to kind of deal with. But she almost can't even give it that level of thought because the death of Nora or her mourning of Nora just looms so much bigger and so much heavier over everything. It's hard to mourn both for her in that space, especially because she has survivor's guilt very clearly, right? She has guilt that she survived and Nora did not. She's guilt that Nora was only there and in the water because she came for Rachel. She has all of this guilt feeling that she basically was the cause on many different levels of Nora passing away. And so in that sense, she can't even give herself the space to grieve for her arm because at least she's kind of alive. And that's a really tough thing and a really kind of tough, complicated emotion to work through. All of this is also paired with this complication about leaving and about moving their camp because the scent like this whole sentiment of leaving isn't just about moving to a safer location it's not about moving to where there's more food resources the idea of leaving that beach is tainted by the sense that it's synonymous with forgetting nora it's the same as moving on from nora and that's why you see Rachel feel like she doesn't want to move Nora's clothes in case Nora comes back. Why Rachel's so hesitant to leave the island. You even hear the girls at different points say things like that. You know, it's been a week at this point. And so that memory of Nora still looms so big over them. And the sense that if they leave that place, it's like they're tucking her away because they're not going to see that sort of landscape in which she was there every day and was very present with them every day. And I think that's really important, honey, because we think about deaths on the island. The natural comparison is to take a look at Devon, even though we, it's not real in the same way that Nora's death isn't real, and compare it back to Jeanette's death, which there's still a lot of differences, both in the way that the girls kind of commemorate and mourn and co-bury and mark her grave and the ritualistics they do for Jeanette compared to what they do for Devin, which is very impersonal and they've had a hard time finding pallbearers. But it's even starker when you take a look at how they handled Nora's death and the way that they have to kind of come to the idea of having a funeral together and co like collectively almost, as well as just it taking them kind of eight days to make this move that is actually really foundational and important to their well-being and then moving forward and going inland. It's a connected a little bit, not only with Nora's loss, but also this idea that Leah talks about, which is giving up. And if they're moving inland, maybe giving up on that chance of being rescued. So it's tied into more than just Nora's loss. They're grieving their other lives in some senses as well. But just to see the evolution of how they commemorate death between season one and season two, I think is really interesting and important. And I also wonder if it's going to be mirroring something like that in season three, once we get there, because we've had that kind of mirrored in season one, now season two, and, and perhaps season three as well. Well, I'm glad you brought up that thing that Leah said to Rachel. Um, the direct quote is, is an acceptance another form of giving up? And there's multiple layers because she is talking about the move. And, you know, the question is, how does moving into the woods feel like acceptance or feel like giving up in that sense of Nora? There's also this bigger arc of, does it feel like an act of acceptance or an act of giving up 
on the idea that they might be rescued. But I think the bigger question is, like, is it, though? Um, they're not forgetting Nora when they're moving there. When they're moving, they're continuing to do that so that they can stay alive. It's for survivalism purposes, so that they could maybe one day be rescued. And so it's just such a way, there's just such a way that Leah is twisting kind of those narratives in order to get what she's actually trying, which is a bit of information out of Rachel. And Leah does learn some information from Rachel. She pushes her way too hard, absolutely, but she at least learns that Nora was the one that introduced the idea to Rachel. And then, of course, one of the many Leahton seeds later on is Fatten, again, expressing some leadership, uh, pushing Leah against Goldcliff Beach and telling her to stay away from Rachel and keep her delusions out of it. The important thing that I try to keep in mind, that scene with Leah and Rachel is so tough to kind of navigate because while the entire time it's happening, you're just like, Leah, like wrong time, read a room, like you can't do this right now. The questions that she's asking are questions that I also want to know. She wants to, <laughs> it's true though. She's, she's asking, you know, was it Nora's idea to come? Do you remember how she heard about it? How did she find out about it? And why did she come? These are all questions that A, I, some of them I want to know personally just now, but some of them I know the answers to, but if I were Leah, I would also want to know the answers to. It's just Leah pushes a little bit too hard, which we've seen her do before. But I also think what you said earlier is so true in that she has waited like seven or eight days. And so she probably now is reaching a little bit of a breaking point with it. Like if you thought that you were trapped on this island and someone put you here and someone was watching you, that's, it is quite a long time to wait to try and find out more answers. So there is a bit of grace that she gave Rachel in there. I think also like Rachel takes on so much blame in this moment you know when she's saying you know she's gone and it's my fault and she repeats those over and over but what's really hard is they are there because of Rachel but they're also there more because of Quinn and so there's kind of like a co-shouldered weight in that if things hadn't happened with Quinn Nora might not have been connected with Gretchen and might not have ended up on the island and so it's really hard to see Rachel take the full weight of that because protecting Rachel was maybe the final reason that Nora decided to bring them but it wasn't the first thing that started her on that journey. And then just around Fatten going into that kind of protective mode when she pulls Leah to the side and tells her she needs to, to leave Rachel alone, we get the first of what is a huge trend of callback lines this season. There's so many that, that are either word for word or super connected to things that was said in season one. Um, but when Fatten pins Leah up against the rock, she says, you know, you have a girl hanging on by an absolute fucking thread. And that's something that we heard about Leah, though, in season one, that she was only hanging on by a thread. And that callback is, is something I really want us to keep an eye on because I agree with what Rachel said earlier. The ways that they treat some people who are facing trauma in this season is different in other ways than the way that they treat Leah this season and the way that they treated Leah last season. I want to shift our focus a little bit away from the girls for a while. We'll definitely come back to them um, a little bit later in this episode when we talk about the evening scenes. But I want to shift over a little bit into talking about the boys and sort of what their overall kind of day is looking like on their plane crash day. Before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the scenes that we get with Roth throughout. And so similar to season one, episode one, where Leah was our main kind of narrator for things, 
Roth takes on that role in season two, episode one, as a little bit more of a representative of the boys. We open with him kind of cuffed and bloody in the bunker room. And for the most part over the episode, he follows sort of like a typical interview format. He's asked to kind of narrate the first day like Leah was and talks about both the first moves that the boys make on the island and also takes the detectives through um, some of the more traumatic things that happened this day, some of the relationships that he's built, and all of those different pieces. What's interesting is there's a little bit of a movement from the detectives to continue to test Roth throughout this. Um, So similar to how they did with Leah when they were trying to figure out if she believed things, it seems like they're still really interested in his perspective and also in particular if the boys believed that DJ's corpse was real and what did they think happened to him. There's also lots of moments where they push him and stereotype him similar to how they did with Leah. But for the most part, we're really going to get into Roth and his sort of story more in the next episode. But a lot of the role that he takes on is just this more overarching sort of spokesperson for events that happened on the boys' island. And I want to talk about that a little bit because in season one, every episode had one narrator Mm -hmm. of sorts. And we felt fairly confident that it was from their perspective how the story was told. Episode one, I feel like might be actually told from Gretchen's perspective or the Mm. research side of things. And the reason I say that, and I have a lot of theories and this is like episode, this will be episode nine. So hold your horses for episode (laughs) nine. But, and I just feel like the questioning that you said about DJ's corpse is really important in that. There's like no skepticism despite how it's like a way more suspect scenario than either Nora or Jeanette. There's like zero skepticism. And it makes me wonder, is that because there actually isn't? Or is it because it's told from this side where these boys are this beloved control group? And so whatever they're kind of putting out or whatever they're kind of saying is just taken in this context or this grain where it just doesn't even compare to the girls because they fucked up. Yeah, maybe. I think also, though, one of our big theories from season one is that Gretchen wants the girls to beat the experiment. I know this will come back up because I still believe that it's true. Um, And I think in a lot of ways, Leah was picked to beat the experiment. And they just didn't have a counterpart really to Leah on their side who has the same level of skepticism about things, the same kind of analytical mind the same level of paranoia sometimes like there just wasn't a person who had that who really would question whether things were real there also weren't so many slip-ups because everything was much more planned but I like the I like the idea that it's Gretchen's perspective puts a little bit it casts like a very certain shadow on the things that the boys do on the first day because some of them in comparison to what the girls did are very confusing and and we will talk about it shortly Another thing that I really picked out of Roth's interview is that similar to how Dan did in season one, episode one, how Dan stereotypes Leah, Dan also stereotypes Roth and kind of calls him, you know, a good, quiet, Catholic kid from Tijuana. And he really sort of like digs his nails a little, Dan digs his nails a little bit into talking a bit about the change that is in Roth and whether those things are still true in a way that like he didn't really with Leah, they always like pushed Leah back into this box 
and never saw the ways that she had grown bigger than that. Conversely, Dan's really like, you're not that person anymore and you've changed into something else to which Roth says sort of the classic line that they were all becoming monsters. Yeah, and it's interesting in the context of episode eight later on, where in episode one, Dan really talks to Roth about how he's changed, maybe he's not stronger, but it's very different than the way that Gretchen talks to Leah in episode eight about how she is stronger and how she has changed and she's changed and is strengthened the most. And so to me, that goes back into my narrative theory. But I also think it's just, this might be a good time to talk a bit about some of the monologues that are shared between characters across the seasons. And so the one I just want to draw our attention to right now is exactly what you were just talking about, Allie, the one where it ends with We Were Becoming Monsters. Prior to that, Roth talks about how we all started wanting to be things. Strong, loved, safe, powerful, included, seen, to be with someone, to be like someone. Of course, this is interspersed with pictures or short montages of all the characters, but I want to contrast it to Nora's monologue to Gretchen in episode 10, when she's talking to Gretchen about what she wants in order for her to participate in in what Gretchen's offering. So Nora says, I want to tell you what I want. I want to help my sister. I don't want to be afraid anymore. I don't want to be afraid to be in love or to love who I want freely, fully, and without reservation. I want to find my people whoever they are. I want to find my strength. I want to make a life where we are not always doing and trying and fighting. I just want a life where we could just be. It's funny because for all the ways that Gretchen portrays the motivations of both islands as different, there's a lot of crossover in there. They both talk about being loved. They both talk about being like included or in a collective. Um, There is like things in there around strength or power or bravery in both groups but there's a lot of parallels between both of those speeches in a way that based on Gretchen's experiment you wouldn't expect there to be. Yeah and I find this really interesting too just to think about the timing of it all so when Nora says that what we see overlaid is snapshots of the girls from just before the shark attack so day 21 day 22 it would have been three weeks or so in And so this goes back to my fuck you, Susan, comment. But three weeks into the boys, to me, it doesn't look quite the same as it does. And we'll get into that later on. But I just want to kind of say that if we think of these as outcomes that we're kind of measuring the experiment (laughs) against, uh, it's just interesting that this is what Gretchen sold the outcomes to Nora as. And we can kind of say that they were obtained. I think that's her underlying theory. But then were those the same outcomes that the boys were being sold? I just, like, I don't know. They both wanted the same thing. And so to see such a, like, a, a veering, such a difference, it's just something I'm just so, boggles me. I think the way that both of these things were sold to them was so different. And I think it's so, I think it's really, really interesting. Because the girls were really sold on this like feminist retreat trip that was about recharging and resetting. There was a lot of beautiful things that were mixed in there about solidarity and sisterhood and all of this, all of this stuff. But the way that the boys trip was portrayed to them was very different. Still over the course of a weekend and was given sort of the definition of like passageways. But it seems to have been a lot more geared towards kind of like 
land-based things um like sports like being out in the wilderness like i'm sure there's some like brotherhood stuff in there and things like that but it it had like a lot more of a like pushing you into being something better giving you these experiences that are like foundational to your your character i think also there's a huge difference in why both groups were coming to things each of the boys through their backstories when we find out why they were sent it's always connected to they did something and this is sort of like their act of restitution where they did something and someone probably said now you need to go do this and it will be healing for you but it's healing in a different way than for the girls the things that had happened to them or that they had done or all of these pieces were not as connected to this retreat that they were going on they were supposed to have an opportunity to recharge and to to grow and to become more of themselves a little bit less as this like being in the wilderness and doing i don't know manly things like i don't know i just hang in the woods in general but like quote unquote sort of like these these kind of like wilderness activities yeah no i i think that makes sense and we didn't really see this until we were watching back episode one of season one. And something that really struck me when we watched it was Shelby saying, I'm doing this retreat to like counteract the pageants, mm -hmm. which really shows the choice in it and mm -hmm. the not that it was forced. Like some of them were kind of forced, like Dot feels forced to help with children's aid and on the boys' islands, like helping with immigration or being sent as part of for Bo and Scotty. They're like court stuff, court stuff, yeah. trespassing, damages, whatnot. I will say about Dot, though, I don't think anybody forced Dot to go. Because if you remember, Tim already had that postcard and That's it was true. this feminist retreat. And so she did get pushed into it at the end because similar to how you think Gretchen made Roth's immigration stuff go away, Gretchen had promised to Dot she would make the CAS stuff go away. But I don't think... It was the same kind of push, whereas a lot of the boys had either um, gotten into trouble with like school administration or with immigration or with the police. Like there was um, a little bit more sort of like institutional influence influence or issues that had been caused than it seems like the girls had. Theirs were a little bit more familial. I think that feels like a good point to kind of shift into talking a little bit more about the boys. We already started doing it a little bit, talking about passageways. Um, but the first kind of time that we see the boys, there's a bit of a transition between a flashback to the girls on the plane into a transition of all of the boys sitting on the plane as well. We see them sitting in their seats and then shift into a series of video introductions from them. In each of the videos, the boys were asked to kind of tell a little bit about themselves and share a little bit about themselves um, with the assumption that they were sending these videos into the organizers of the trip but also seems like maybe where it's going to be shared with participants i wasn't super clear on like what the purpose of the videos were for other than for gretchen to just watch them right which which she's she does yeah, which she does the intro videos are interesting because they're not something i could see the girls having been asked to do especially when you think about something like leah who was just kind of put in a car and like taken to the airport or fatten who's so upset when she's there and like it's just such a, there's just such a different vibe with the boys. There's like a level of excitement kind of for them with this trip that some of the girls had, but not all of the girls had. The only ones that I could see like being a part of this like video system would have been maybe like Shelby, Tony, and Martha because they were so excited and pumped about things, but I don't know. 
Yeah, well, and it, it's hard with even with Martha and Tony because we're still not sure how they got there. The only evidence that I can think of off the top of my head that, like, shows some excitement is that, like, they, like, bought Takis and Gatorade when they, like, boarded the plane all, like, mm-hmm. excitedly. Uh, that's the only kind of thing I can think about that, like, shows that level of excitement. But certainly I think you're you're right that, yeah, in those videos, some people were, like, yeah, kind of excited to be filming it and, like, talking themselves up. And, I mean, except for Henry, of course. Yeah, I mean, Henry. And Kieran, to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did write down a list of uh, in my notes of like people who were excited versus not excited. And so on the excited list, I put Josh, Ivan, Bo and Scotty. And I think mostly everyone else. I just stopped listing excited people at that point in time so that I could list the not excited people. And the two people that are on that list is like Henry and Kieran. I think mostly I got to like Seth and Seth was kind of like apathetic and Raph was like tentatively excited. But really, like, I mean, Henry just listing the things that he would rather be doing as though this was like he was being forced into this no choice, like being drug it almost sounded like a like a list of demand. Anyways, it was just it was very funny. The other thing that I just would like to flag for a future discussion is that Josh's suitcase is on his bed and it is a dead ringer for fattened suitcase, except instead of being pink, it's silver. Gonna like just let that sit for a little while because I know we're gonna pick it back up eventually, maybe in a very long time. <laughs> but I just want to pick out the fact that the suitcases look the same. Otherwise, let's maybe shift um, the kind of flashes that we get. They're good intros to characters, but I think they're very brief and they kind of set us up to see this sort of like happy anticipation that a lot of the boys were having, and then to contrast that sort of sense when we get them onto the island. So right after this, uh, we don't really see the plane crash with the boys. We don't see any of the kind of fallout. We cut to them sort of sitting on the beach in this group. There seems to be like a lot of different sort of reactions to the plane crash that are going on. Some people are just chilling. I think we'll talk about that. You have DJ who's like off ranting and and yelling and shouting um, and breaks his toes. There's a little bit of crying that happens. There's a bit of like yelling that goes on. There's a bit of like mixed emotions except i would say that all of the emotions felt super muted to me in comparison to the emotions that we saw the girls have yeah and i want to hone in on a couple of really key differences just in this island scene it's hard for me to some extent because i think you can feel that this is eight episodes instead of ten in a lot of places and so you wonder to what extent that they try to cut out things that looked somewhat similar in the name of advancing the story because we already had a full episode almost dedicated to day one of the girls. So that's in the back of my mind. But it, there is some interesting pieces in that, for example, seemingly no one is injured from oh, being mishandled. Yeah. We had, if you remember in season one, Martha's ankle was twisted. Uh, people had blood coming out of their ears. Obviously, Lynn's injuries but like there were people oh Shelby's flipper too there were people with genuine injuries but the boys all seemed fine and kind of dry yeah well and it, it could go back to Gretchen in season one talks about how there was mishandling and so their eyes was the important this time around and so I think when we first saw it we thought it was just about Lynn but maybe there was mishandling and the other girls hence the flipper and Martha's injury so that could be the case But the other piece is that, like, everyone is in seemingly the same location, whereas we know that at least Leah and Jeanette 
came to in the water. I think Martha did as well. She was like stuck in the whirlpool, essentially. Whereas they're all kind of on land. Doesn't even really seem like they gathered a lot of the things from the ocean either. They just kind of are like plopped down, kind of in a haphazard circle shape thing. Yeah, it's weird. It's almost like the lack of injuries makes them not really grasp the severity of the situation. The vibes they just have are totally different. There's a little bit more joking that happened. There's some like laughing that happens when um, DJ like breaks his toes. There's a little bit more like teasing and stuff that happens. It's just a totally different vibe from the girls. If you rewatch their scene, they immediately kind of recognize the severity of the situation. There was a lot of crying. Um, there also was a lot of like relational stuff that was going on. Yeah, and when I took a look back at season two, episode one, and season one, episode one, I want to talk about like physical touch a little bit. At least what I saw when I was taking a look at the boys, we don't see them like make any physical contact with each other until after they kind of split into two groups, DJ decides to head back. And I think Josh and Seth kind of give him a pat on the back. In contrast to season one, episode one, we see Dot wiping cake from Fatten. We see Leah and Jeanette obviously handling each other a lot, hugging, um, bringing each other in as well. Shelby with Martha tending to her ankle, looking at the injury as well. It's the exact same injury or very similar injury to what DJ had, but no one offers to like take a look at his toes or... Yeah isolate them in the way that Shelby did. And chances are, like what Gretchen did with the girls, they would have some foundational awareness of CPR, which doesn't really account for a toe injury, but you'd think also some first aid AIDS awareness, right? They all were first aid certified. Was that confirmed? Yes. That's what what they say. I thought they just said they had CPR. I think it says in one of the field notes that all of the girls have their first aid certification. Okay. Uh, anyways, and even just like Dot giving chest compressions to Jeanette, just like there's no hesitation with comfort in whatever form that takes with the girls. And it also just goes to like how they talk about each other later, even when Shelby provides the eulogy for Jeanette, being able to say she had a bright spirit and saying that with like conviction and knowledge, uh, just from a a little short time is just such a, a contrast to what we see with the boys. Another thing that's kind of interesting is... They do seem aware kind of off the bat that, you know, they came in pairs because um, there's a moment where Josh is crying and then Kieran kind of is like, why are you crying? And I'm like, oh my God, like there was a plane crash, like leave him alone. Um, But it's like this weird thing where like Josh is like, who came with him? And so they're aware that there are pairs, but once again to this, like, did they have Aaliyah in their group? No one ever thinks it's weird that DJ is running around without a pair or that there's only nine. Like, no one ever really questions that, which I thought was really interesting. And like, I don't know, their lack of relationality to each other, even in that first episode, like they're not connecting and they're not even trying to connect. And so I can't tell if it's just like a, like a feeling of like, they don't, they want to pretend like everything's okay or where that's coming from. But they don't even really try to get to know each other. And it's even interesting just hearing Roth talk back about it. So when he has a very similar monologue to Leah, and maybe I'll just read them side by side just for everyone's knowledge. So when Roth talks about it, he says, I remember not knowing names. He talks about how he's never been good at it. He just sort of knew the basics. But he introduces the characters as there were the two best friends from Florida, Josh, whose name I only know from school, the smart one with the fancy clothes, the lax bro, the emo kid with the glasses, and his stepbrother, Seth, whose name for some reason just stuck with me. 
Oh, and of course, tracksuit kid who really hated his mom. Hold that in your head for a moment because I'm going to read Leah's. So Leah's monologue starts out with Jeanette. That was her name I found out later. And she was the only one who'd come alone. The rest of us came in pairs. There was Tony and Martha, best friends from Minnesota. The Texans, Dot and Shelby. There was Rachel from New York and her sister Nora and Fatten, of all people, from my school. Now Leah does go on to say, but like I said, none of this sunk in until later. Not faces, not names, not even the ridiculous welcome video. I was somewhere else. But in the field notes of this episode, or one of the episodes, it does talk about how even though Leah was in her sad book, she was paying attention to people and faces and names. And it's just so interesting because she's saying this to detectives, detectives who she knows are suspicious of her and she's trying to avoid suspicion. So she intentionally talks about names in this scenario. But in the same scenario, when Roth is doing it, 34 days later, he doesn't give them the names. He doesn't give the people who he spends 34 days with that knowledge, that that knowing, speaking about them in a, in a, in a way that is humanizing, I guess. Well, he doesn't even pair them. If you think about the way that Leah talks about all of the girls, she pairs them relationally to who they came with. But Roth doesn't even do that. There's just sort of this like list of people based around kind of what his initial impressions of them are. And for some things, it's a little bit disturbing because even like with Devin referring to him as like tracksuit kid, the girls like never forgot Jeanette's name. And like even later in the season would like shorten it to like Jay and stuff like that as sort of like this warm kind of thing that they gave her. And so it's it's kind of an interesting the way that the boys like disassociate in a different way from what was a traumatic event for both of them. Right. And it, it that's a great example. And another one is the the term triple ditch, which two people use to describe Kieran. And even Ivan calls Kieran, well, he calls him by his last name, but he also calls him Chad. And Kieran is also referred to later as being a Karen. And so the way that they weaponized names throughout to make it feel is like almost like if you're not memorable is really different. And in contrast to the girls, everyone kind of knows each other's right away. So Dot knows Tony's right away as an example. Tony even knows Shelby's name right away when they're rescuing Martha. And as you mentioned, they never forget Jeanette's name and even shorten it to make it affectionate later on too. Yeah, it's, it's this thing where I think weaponize is the right term because sometimes they, you know, change it to things like calling Henry Damon and stuff as a little bit of like a, a mocking thing. But also they mispronounce people's names sometimes. Like they constantly call Roth like Raph or they, or what is the other one? It's like Rave that they say, but it's yeah. like a, it's like a weird pronunciation where I'm like, where did you even get that from? But they use names in strange ways and they... Yeah, I think you're right. Like they use the forgetting of someone's name or the mispronouncing of someone's name or the changing of someone's name as a way to distance themselves from each other, as a way to say like, you're not even important enough that I like know your name, but also as like something is kind of like a dig to bother people because then people also feel like, why aren't you just using my name? The next thing that sort of happens on the island is they decide to kind of divide into two groups and go looking for help. Kieran is the one who sort of brings it up um, and then divides them into group one, which was Kieran, Henry, Bo, and Scotty, and group two, which was DJ, Seth, Ivan, 
Roth and Josh. And an important thing to note here is Kieran specifically modified the group so that Ivan wasn't a part of his group, which obviously we learn more about later this season. I mean, both groups really just walk the beach and sort of their their overall intention doing this is to like run into like a millionaire's house on this island that can't possibly be deserted. So they both just head out in opposite directions to do a little bit of exploring. Kieran kind of brings up the suggestion of doing this division because he doesn't want to like sit or discuss or kind of talk, but he wants to do. There's like a big parallel in this to Rachel when she wants to swim out to the plane and and search the crash or when she wants to climb the mountain and look for something. And that sense of just wanting to like physically do something and physically go do something and and kind of like taking on that, that sort of leadership role that they both do in different ways. I want to just like pick up on a little bit something here. Other than sort of like sitting on the beach and then now like going to look for a building or a house for someone to like help them. Like the steps the boys are taking are very different than the steps that the girls are taking. So like day one with the boys, they've talked. They're going to go look for a hotel, not for resources or anything like that. Conversely, the girl steps on the island were number one to find each other and care for each other or to kind of like lash out in anger. And um, the second thing that they did was sort of mark their lifelines. So they found the phone. They talked about making an SOS sign. The third thing that they did was do a resource inventory. So collect everything that they have and mark everything down that they have. The fourth thing that they did was look for water. That's what Shelby and Tony actually had gone out to do. Um, And while Tony and Shelby were looking for water, they worked at collecting things from the wreckage. They divided up a bunch of responsibilities. They started making next day plans for what they were going to do. And so there was all this kind of forethought and thought that went into this. But I felt kind of like the boys were just like, we're just going to kind of like go and try and find someone to save us because someone has to be here. And it's just like a a different kind of like a sense of sort of purpose and duty and like what is the thing that you need to do that both boys groups take. If we're going to think a little bit about group number one um, when they divided, which was Kieran, Henry, Bo and Scotty's group, they walk the beach for a little while. They have some like conversations um we learn a little bit about skills in this so we learn about henry being a boy scout um we also learn that kieran often messes up idioms <laughs> there's like a weird pee scene um and we also see sort of the start of of resource hoarding that's that's going to exist i know you really want to talk about resource hoarding so maybe we start with that where scotty drops the granola bar Bo picks it up for him and then scotty kind of says we should keep this to ourselves yeah, well, I think it's just it's just another very clear example of how they veer and how they differ, and it comes up again later. Um, so with the granola bar, with the meat and the jaguar, as well as with like the extra beer that they found, trying to hold on to things for themselves, and they actually never get caught, which is kind of interesting. Which is in contrast to the girls. With I think it was for example was the toothbrush mm-hmm. and. Dot was like, the inventory was supposed to be comprehensive. Uh, And just the openness of the Dot inventory and the organization of it compared to Kieran kind of being like, let's take a look at everything and dumping the suitcase over to see what they had. Yeah, it's this, this kind of challenging sense between the greater good and individual good. And so while the girls really lean into like the greater good aspect of things, the boys really focus on that individual piece. And so like Scotty in particular is like, we have to take care of us talking about him and Bo. 
I feel like it also bleeds into that piece where no one's really taking the lead to say things like we need to go and get water or we need to collect food or we need to collect the plain things. It's like everyone's thinking about themselves individually as a person. So they're not thinking about what they as a collective group need to do. No one's kind of like taking on that leadership role. Kieran kind of emerges as like a leader, leader person. Um, and Seth sort of too, in that they both have the ability to motivate people and to get people to do things. But it doesn't always seem like either of them have like a clear vision for what the group should be doing, or at least one that they want to take on a leadership role for. And the girls played around a little bit with this as well in their early days until Dot kind of became the de facto leader. And we're even seeing it now on the island too, with like Fatten having growing leadership capabilities and responsibilities too but Shelby was actually the person that talked about doing an inventory first and Rachel was such an early leader of all of those missions and she became the leader when Dot took a break as well so the girls kind of had differences in leadership but I think it's really interesting because if we think about the characteristics of what makes Dot a really good leader you'd think that those characteristics are actually probably the most shared with someone like Henry yeah, I think well if you think about the utility and like survival knowledge Henry's the only one who knows anything like and it's very subtle the way that he sneaks yeah. it in, but he's kind of like a hybrid dot Nora to some extent yeah. too. And they just shut him down all the time, but he's the one who has like his information and his knowledge and he never really gets acknowledged for it. But like the stuff that he carries is like genuinely what keeps them alive most of the time. And I think this like really like bleeds well or like carries over well into that sense of where he shares that he's a Boy Scout. It's mentioned multiple times throughout the season. And you definitely feel that like Gretchen picked him because of that. She picked him to be that counterpart of like survival knowledge to what Dot had, to what Nora had. And it actually kind of leads us to our field note of the week. Well, what is our field note of the week, Allie? So our field note of the week is number 145. And it is, the Boy Scout oath is as follows. A scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, reverent. Henry didn't take issue with most of these, um, but the whole cheerful thing was a sticky point. Can I just ask why you had a little chuckle at clean? (laughs) Sticking points are not sticky points. Uh, I don't know, man. They're all so dirty all the time. Oh, I thought, it, I thought, well, I'm going to throw you under the bus because the thing is, I thought you were laughing at you because you oh, yeah. were a scout. I was a scout. I tried brownies and I didn't like it. Um, and then I was a scout for a very long time. I was a scout. I was a troop leader too. Like I was, I was a scout for a very long time. Of course you were, Shelby. I mean, Allie. <laughs> um, no, it was mostly just because like they're, they're dirty all the time, but Yeah, I think we picked this one because I think it's like interesting to think about like these skills in sort of a reflection to everyone on the island and Mm. like the ways that they do and don't like fit these things. All of these like characteristics, I feel like they've all embodied at one point, even like moving into this season when we're talking about things like reverence or things like being reverent. Like I think like the way that faith has kind of like moved and shifted into things is really important. But we have such strong evidence of people being like loyal, um, like everything that Fatten does or Dot does or even Tony does. Um, And then from the boys, you have that relationship between like Scotty and Bo, which like just like can't be broken no matter what is happening. You also have things 
like being helpful and friendly and how Josh embodies that on the boys island and how Martha brings that kind of sense too on the girls island when you're thinking about things like being kind there's so much kindness that exists in both groups in certain moments like there's also moments where they're not kind I want to be clear um, but there are places where they fill those roles the obedient thing like I think is a little bit of like a challenge authority thing and so I think there are moments but it's also probably the the loosest one I'm not going to go through all of these because they're... I mean, you've hit most of them. Yeah, I mean, they're, I mean, cheerful, thrifty, brave, and clean that I haven't, I haven't touched on. But I think these are all such important skills that they all needed to carry, or at least one person in their group needed to carry in order for them to be successful. So I just thought it was like an interest... For me, I thought it was a really interesting field note inclusion. I really advocated for this one. So Rachel really wanted the Martha reading a book, which is why we mentioned it earlier one. But I was like, no... <laughs> The Boy Scout one. I also like we the also SOS just, We also just called the Scouts in Canada, I just want to say. We also liked the Navy one. Oh, we did like the Navy one, too. Because we feel very, very vindicated. We love the military references. Anytime yeah. there is one, we're like, we were right. Yeah. It's... There's a military connection. It's coming. Yeah. Yeah, I want to hone in on just something you said, which was about Josh mm. and the helpfulness. And it's interesting because he is the one with watertight suitcase, as is Fatten. But Fatten... They had to get to the point where they were all cold in order for them to share clothes. Whereas we don't see that happen with the boys. It happens on day one. Like Seth brings Raph a sweater. They don't talk about exchanging clothes, but he has it. And so maybe that happens, but it seems to me like it was more forthcoming and more giving of Josh in that circumstance than Fatten who didn't really click that she could help the girls out in a material way until later. And then she weaponizes it as well. Yeah. I think the boys have a little bit of an advantage with the types of clothing that they have as well, too. I mean, fat and well, she does have like an array of clothing that they all can share. A lot of her warmer gear is centered around like sweatshirts and like light jackets and things that are, you know, fashionable, but maybe not actually that like hefty of a material. In contrast, because they were going on this wilderness retreat and like the boys all, they never expected to be at like a hotel and doing things like goat yoga and like laying on the beach. They expected to be doing sort of like camping and wilderness stuff. And so like a lot more of his clothing is like, it's like Patagonia jackets. And I'm pretty sure he had a goose at some point and like hiking gear, right? And so there's a lot more of like a durability to it, but also like there's a lot more insulation in it and sort of like different things that would actually keep you warm. And we see the boys talk later in the season about how cold it got. And there's a lot of times you see them in coats. But something that I realized during our rewatch of season one, episode one, is the girls also talk about how much colder it is on the island for them than they expected it to be. And so it's like this weird sort of like unfairness and sort of the quality of clothing that people had access to. Yeah, and I think Ali and I looked a lot at what do they each kind of have foundational access to? And of course, like the drawstring bags is one example. Like we poo-pooed at the beginning when we first started this podcast, the eclectic collection of swag that they had, but it actually has quite a number of utility, whether it's like a hat for sun protection or the metal water bottles that they can put in the fire to boil the water or having a pen and a notebook, like some of these things that have been really helpful to some of the girls and, and healing for some of the girls as well. But the clothing is is one of those things where there's a bit of a difference. And even like the Josh having the medicine cabinet in contrast to the pilot's bag, 
I don't think there's enough time between experiments for Gretchen to make a in-game decision to say, we can't put the pilot bag in again. It raises too much suspicion. We need to find someone that travels with a pharmacy. But certainly, uh, maybe he was picked in part because of that reason or because he was one of the people we find out later who paid. Maybe there was like a packing list or something supplemental or who knows what. Yeah, except I do think that Fatten's parents also paid because we know how mad they were at her. I'm sorry, I wasn't going to get into it, but I'm going to get into it. It's my whole thing with the fact the suitcases actually look the same. They both were waterproof. All of their stuff was dry. It's like the perfect person to send stuff with. I just think the quality of things that were in the suitcases was different. Like Josh also had food in his suitcase and Fatten didn't. And that could be connected to Josh packing snacks in his food case and putting kids in his socks and putting like kids and jerky in his bag and stuff like that and having access to like all of that medication but i do think the quality of clothing is a weird inequity that exists between the two groups what if i could just say something uh this is a fun fact it's podcast fun facts new section we're trying out one episode only called podcast fun facts <laughs> <laughs> it's we're working on it but Allie, not knowing that kids would come up bought as part of our snacks for recording a big bag of Sour Patch Kids. And then we were so delighted when they came up and we were eating Sour Patch Kids. And also funny, Allie bought the tropical kind of Sour Patch Kids (laughs) and her reasoning was because they're on an island. (laughs) Yeah, that was deliberate though. I was looking like... The tropical bit was deliberate. The Sour Patch Kids was just a happy coincidence. Yeah, there's not a lot of kids left, but we've uh, we've watched the show a few times. So I think it's okay. I think it's okay, too. For the, uh, if you remember, we were just kind of with group one. Uh, but if we think about group two, the other group that went the opposite way of the island, that was made up of DJ, Seth, Ivan, Roth, and Josh. And they similarly kind of like walked the beach until they couldn't walk anymore. And found nothing. There was some like good moments in there with like Ivan and Josh kind of like starting to have conversations. This is when they really nailed in that point around Josh basically having a medicine cabinet in his bag. Um, And this is also the point where DJ, um, upon trying to climb a cliff, is in so much pain from his foot that he heads back. One thing that I want to pick out that Josh says when he's talking to Ivan is he talks about... uh, when he broke his arm when he was younger and not having friends to sign his cast and how his therapist told him that that's a foundational wound. I just think that's such like a powerful thing to bring up in in episode one when we're thinking about all of these boys and all of these girls who have some sort of like symbolic or foundational wound that really all of their actions that they do since then have been geared back to that one specific moment. Um, last season we talked about falls from grace and sort of like that pivotal moment where somebody falls um Gretchen actually references it in this episode which I think we'll talk about when we get to the experiment but she she specifically wants to know what made Roth as an angel fall um which I was just like I was like oh my god what's happening right now (laughs) um but I think it's like, it's an interesting thing to say because he's talking about this this thing about not having friends that happened. And once again, it's one of those moments where, you know, if things went fine for Josh on the island and he built a lot of relationships, can you heal and move away from that foundational wound in the same way that it seems like all of the characters are being given the option to do on the island? The other thing that I want to say is around Devon. Um, and so specifically, or DJ, we know him at this part, which is probably Devin Jr. is what it stands for. Uh, well, that's what my assumption is. Ooh, I Ooh. like it. 
but Devin, when trying to climb, as I mentioned, couldn't. And then the suggestion is brought up that Devin heads back to camp, which is very important for kind of what happens to Devin and how that sort of story wraps up. I think something that is really important is, I hope you all have seen the whole, the whole show, but it's Seth, who we know is a Confederate, who actually makes the suggestion that Devin goes back. And Devin, upon kind of like turning back to the group, issues a little bit of like a foreboding kind of like good luck guys to them all before he leaves. Like Jeanette. Like Jeanette, but which also like speaks to this like planned sense where like Seth gave Devin the out to head back knowing and both of them knowing that they were going to stage this whole kind of corpse thing. It's also just such a contrast to the girls in that I don't think they ever would have sent someone back on their own. They just gave him a stick of wood and said like, see ya back there team. I'm like, he is injured. (laughs) There's something wrong with him. Yeah. So after basically, like I said, this, this kind of like walk leads to nothing. It's a little bit anticlimactic, especially on day one, but they weren't climbing mountains like Rachel did. They all sort of head back um, to the spot that they started on the beach and they find DJ's very, very mangled body on the beach. And let's like maybe just talk about DJ's body because like it is like mangled beyond belief. Like there's like huge like wounds in his leg. His face is basically half non-existent. I've seen a couple of like funny (laughs) tweets that have been kind of like, didn't the boys realize that it was a dummy? It's like, well, like, I think like the show used like probably like a dummy for the body. But like, I actually feel like Gretchen got a real life cadaver and just like tore it to shit and pretended it was Devin. Yeah, it's probably the pilot. Oh, no. You think she, no, I don't think she like, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I give her a little bit more credit than maybe I should. The also reasoning that sort of Roth shares around it is like when asked what they thought happened to Devin, he was like, I think he slipped on a rock and was swept out into the ocean and then was attacked. And I was like, what? But I guess like if you have no knowledge, like that's the story that you would piece together, especially like with the acknowledgement that they later have like a apex predator on their island but it's just one of those things where it was just like so fucking gory and i understand that it was meant to like mimic the trauma of Jeanette, and they obviously couldn't have the boys there when dj died like they were like the girls were when Jeanette died so i guess it was maybe like the next best thing was to make it really kind of gruesome but it was like really bloody Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because despite the severity of it, it still doesn't really alter their interpretation of the severity of the situation. And again, the the rituals around death that they go along are not particularly, like, humanizing either. Yeah, do you want to talk about the burial? I mean, I touched on it a little bit earlier when we compared it with Jeanette's burial. But just to say that... They all kind of come together and, and, and build some consensus, which is like a good thing to see. But it's more like it's not a consensus of it's a consensus of like the lesser of all evils, almost, if you will. It's like a necessary consensus, but it's not like one that they are actually trying to create or like move themselves towards like this model of kind of governing themselves. It's like no one really wants to deal with it. So they come together to deal with it and then they break apart after it. I do genuinely think it's connected to some sort of weird disassociation thing, though. Like, the girls all take, like, a personal stake in burying Jeanette. They all help carry her. 
Um, even like there's like kind of like a blanket or a towel that's used in both scenarios. The girls use the towel to carry Jeanette to the place that they're going to bury her. The boys use the towel to cover up DJ's body. A bit of that is like a bit connected to the goriness of it, but it's just like a totally different thing to do. Just even the sense of like all of the girls taking equal responsibility and carrying Lynn. Um, we always joke that like Martha has like a twisted ankle and she's like limping along, like carrying a corner of this blanket. Meanwhile, Shelby is like not even. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I say they all took equal responsibility, but classic Shelby, Shelby that slacker just walking behind. <laughs> um, before the, boys like it's it's only seth and roth that carry the body in no one really volunteers no one steps into that leadership position which is a weird thing that kind of continues on with them a little bit um but it's those two people i think the boys help carry him a little bit but it's those two that carry him actually into the water and there's all of these beautiful things that happened when they buried Jeanette, like they said words. When they actually buried her body, they all crouched down on the ground and moved the dirt over to cover her. There was just a level of care that wasn't given to Devin. Or even like they sang a song over her body and they also knew things about her. They had like memorized things about her, like that she liked pink. And you just don't see that. It's that there's like a disconnect for the boys that I actually found a little bit unsettling. I don't know. There's just, there's just something, there's something impersonal about it that made me a bit of, a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. And just to add to that too, the Leah saying that she liked pink is good evidence to say that Leah was paying attention and kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. But something else is that while the burials are really different, the girls actually go down the rabbit hole of thinking about Jeanette being lost at sea. Yeah. When they bear, unbury the body and the body's not there. And they still find beauty in that. You know, there's some concern about her being out there and being alone, but then I think it's Shelby says something along the lines of like, yeah, but she's like with Mother Nature and isn't that beautiful like to be with her or something like that. Um, anyway, sorry, that's really beautiful. Sorry, Shelby. I didn't mean to like understate your beautiful words. Whereas the boys are like, oh, like that close to camp when there's like a predator out there. Like they basically are knowingly releasing it to him to that predator, right? His corpse to whatever the predator is and not finding the beauty or the ceremony or the grace in that situation no and like there's a practicality to the way the boys approach it and even it doesn't seem they give a thought at this point they still kind of feel like someone's going to rescue them but they don't even really give a thought to making sure like dj's remains go back home the girls when they bury jeanette specifically say we're just going to have to dick her back up in a couple of days, understanding that like her body would need to be returned. But the boys don't even think about that. They don't even think about the impact that that could have on his family. I mean, he's not dead. It's a, it's a cadaver, but I'm just saying they don't know that. The final kind of scene that we have with the boys, Seth and Roth are having a chat um, sort of like up the hill of the beach they kind of cover a, a range of topics, anything from talking about um, their relationships with their girlfriends and or ex-girlfriends depending on who we're talking about or maybe both of them or maybe both of them um and it also falls into this sort of like bigger theme of like roth and seth 
building this relationship and Seth checking in on Raph. They also share some booze. They pour one out for DJ, but they, they sort of have this, this conversation, which is interesting when you think about Raph's overall bunker interview, where he's talking about Seth is that person who made him feel special and made him feel kind of recognized and seen and, and made him feel included in a way. And so this is kind of a moment where Seth kind of specifically seeks Roth out. Yeah, and the only thing I want to talk about in this piece is the pouring one out for Devin. Yeah. It's interesting to have this kind of ceremony amidst a very unceremonial death. So I don't want to like not say that there was some ceremony to it. But I also just want to talk about like how wasteful it is to kind of pour one out. So fine that Roth doesn't drink totally okay but the piece around you know the alcohol could also be used as like a disinfectant but to be able to just kind of like pour that out without thinking of they're not thinking long term right yeah and so it's interesting because it's like on the one hand i want to give them credit for like acknowledging it and like marking it in some way whatever way makes sense to them or, or feels kind of decent to them but on the other hand it's uh it's something that feels very wasteful because they haven't done an inventory. Those could only be the only two bottles that they have, for example. Yeah. Yeah, you just don't really know. I mean, it also brings up the question, like, Gretchen Major, both groups had access to, like, mini bottles of alcohol. True serum. Yeah, true serum. Or you're right. I think it could be antiseptic, too, depending that's what, on what That's what Gretchen of... also says, yeah. Oh, does she say that? Well, yeah. she says it about the Lynn's vodka. Vodka, yeah. Yeah, or true serum. That's what Jen <laughs> Or what true Lynn says. serum. Um, I don't know where those that just sticks in my head. Like, there's a part of my brain that is just like permanently damaged and only full of the wilds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm um, that later. The other thing that I just want to pull out from this moment is this isn't the first time that Seth has tried to build a relationship with Raph today. There was a moment up on the hill where he kind of made a bit of a crude joke. Um, there was a moment when the boys were standing in a group. Seth has been kind of like rotating through and checking in on everyone. And we know that Seth is a Confederate in like a way that was very different than Nora. His check-ins are kind of like very in your face. And and Roth even comments, I see you continually checking on people. But what I thought was interesting is there was a couple instances where Seth tried to make friends with Roth throughout the episode and like would make jokes, but Roth would never laugh. And so then it kind of almost feels like when he comes to sit with him, he's taking a different approach because he's almost testing to figure out like what is the best way to connect with him. And it's something that you see him do. I, I always like I've jokingly called him like a chameleon a couple times while Rachel and I have been talking because he changes who he is depending on who he's talking to. And he changes um, the jokes that he makes or the vibe that he sets or any of those different people. And so in this moment, you can see him testing out a new vibe to relate and connect with Roth. Yeah, and I think this this is one of our theories that we'll come back to probably later on. But I think both Allie and I feel that there's another Confederate among the boys group. And the reason for that is if you take a look at Seth at knowing he's the Confederate, especially on day one, he doesn't map on well to Nora. No, he doesn't. He maps a lot better on to what you'd think the role of Jeanette would have been. Jeanette, who comes in with an icebreaker like Shelby, wanting to get people to know each other, who has the equipment bag of like having vodka, for example, or trying to, you know, kind of get the girls chatting or building those relationships. So he mirrors that characteristic and that value a lot more than he does Nora. 
So I think that's something that we'll talk about more later. And I think like, I know there's an argument to be made that like Seth is like a deeply flawed person and he needs validation from people. So he seeks validation from people. But I do think that Gretchen is conscious of personality when she selects her confederates. So she, obviously she did hopefully not know like everything that Seth would do, but she knew that he would be like a little bit, probably like more outgoing in his relationship building than necessarily Nora would have been. And so I agree, like, I think that he maps better to what I would have assumed Lynn would look like than what I would assume. Like, I don't think he, he matches with my understanding not even my understanding, my knowledge of how Nora was That's on right. the island. Yeah. I'm like, my understanding, I'm like, I have logged a lot of hours of watching this show. My knowledge. Um, one other thing I just want to say before we can kind of close out the boys' island and, and hop back to the girls because we want to close out their evening stuff is there's a line um, that Seth says, and I just don't understand it. And so if anyone can explain it to me, that would be great. But Seth is talking about how Julia compared him to a kindergarten teacher in Northern California. And it's such a weird specific reference. Um, like I understand like if it's like, he's like a kindergarten teacher, but it's the in Northern California part that I just don't understand. And I can't tell if there's something there or if it's a weird like thing, but if you know what it means, like come at me, I'd love to hear. So back to the girls, we still know that it is moving day and Rachel is remaining on the beach next to Nora's stuff. And here she's joined by Dot, who takes her through some rationales for, for trying to move and tries to comfort her uh, to be comfortable with that decision. When I first watched the show, there's a line um, where Dot says Martha saged their new... Well, she, sa- she says they saged their new... Um, home or their new sort of like site but I definitely thought she said staged like s-t-a-g-e-d so like I never like thought Joanna Gaines. Any- yeah <laughs> yeah like staged like a house so I never got it but then anyways when we were doing our rewatch we had the subtitles on and I just like loved this so much I just love that Martha either brought sage or she found sage and then she dried it and then she's burning it because it's one of those moments where spirituality is so big this season we also see Martha um, use tobacco later on in the season but like saging is like such a or like it's just such a ceremonial thing but it's also such a cultural thing and such a such a beautiful thing for Martha to do for anyone who doesn't know um, about when you're using sage you're, you're getting rid of any sort of like negativity or harm like in that space um, and so it's just like a very beautiful thing for for Martha to bring and to share as a part of that she wanted to get real Nishinaabe. She would have put like cedar around all the doorways around everywhere that they live. Um, but I think it's still like a beautiful, um, it's like a beautiful cultural inclusion that there's a couple of them this season. There's also one thing I'm really upset about that we'll talk with when they actually say it, where there's a not great thing that said later on. Um, but it's the first of a couple of moments um, that really shine and show Martha's culture and like give as much reverence to it that I, as an Indigenous person, think it deserves. Yeah, well, it just goes back to, like, Martha being so warm and loving is such an in- intrinsic character trait, and we just see it. And I think it's really easy for characters like that for you to take them for granted mm-hmm. and for you just to see what they do as, like, being kind. And that's really, really true. But I just love the space that the show creates 
for Martha to like bring her whole self and to be able to like live those values that she has through her culture as well. And being able to bring that in, it just makes it so much more alive than her just being kind. It just makes it so much more her and it just makes it so much more, I think, probably meaningful too. Mm -hmm. There's also like so much beauty in this scene with like Dot giving Rachel the time to be ready. Like earlier, she had kind of said, I'm going to need you to move with us. But then when she sits down with Rachel, she really shares in her pain um, in a way that we see a lot of characters do with Rachel through the season, where they, they kind of share a little bit about what they're personally carrying, but not in a way to overshadow the pain that Rachel's feeling, in a way to kind of commiserate with it or a way to kind of show that they understand how Rachel's feeling. And so Dot shares... Um, a little bit about her dad and a little bit about sort of the way that she struggled when her dad passed away. Yeah. And one of the things um, that she says is she's kind of talking through the stages of grief. And there's this bigger theme across the season about grief not being linear. Um, but what she specifically is talking about is how sometimes the ways that people tell you you're supposed to grieve aren't the ways that you actually grieve. So she says, you know, when you lose someone and every new second feels like a brand new circle of hell. So I'm thinking however many seconds in your lifetime that they're gone, that's how many, just a billion little bullshit stages. So pushing back against that linear idea of the five stages of grief um, and, and thinking about the fact that like grief is so individual and the path that you take when you're healing from grief is so individual. And we just love to see it. You know, we talked about last season that when some of the characters were paired together, they were talking about the right things, but just not with the right people and how mm -hmm. sometimes they just weren't saying the right things with the right people. And so we see a lot more of those moments this season where they're talking with the right person about the right thing in the right way and really finding out how to support each other in those moments. It's also where our episode title comes from. So our episode title, obviously, for this episode is I'm not letting you stay out here alone. And it's what Dot says to Rachel. And so it's said in the sense of you can take as much time as you need out here, but I'm not going to make you sit out here by yourself. And I think the concept of alone and loneliness is a theme. And I think our, I'm going to put it out in the world. We might do a special episode on this. I thought there later. were going to be no special episodes, Rachel. Yeah, trios and the theme of loneliness. And I think we probably want to go back to season one and think about it in that context, context as well. But I also just want to say, this is a little bit of a callback to Dave talking to Shelby about I don't want you to be alone. And I think there's something so beautiful in Dot saying this to Rachel and Dot being the one from Texas that like even Dot never would have let Shelby be alone. But it's even more beautiful now that like Shelby is never going to be alone because she has Dot and she has that person in her life forever. And Dot's being there for Rachel and she certainly would do the same thing for Shelby as well. Also, it, it's followed up by this beautiful warm moment with Dot where Rachel kind of says, you know, she doesn't want anyone to watch her because it would feel like replacing Nora. Um, but she puts on Nora's shoes and gathers Nora's things and heads back with Dot to camp. Yeah, the only other thing I want to say about that is this is another moment where Rachel makes a joke. So they talk about Miss Mary Mack. And I also want to look back at some point and like look at Rachel's jokes. I mean, Rachel's really funny this season just in general. Like, mm -hmm. but it's an interesting moment for her to use humor. 
but it goes a long way and it's a nice reflect back for when dot is changing rachel's bandage earlier in the episode it makes like the most horrible joke i've ever heard it's i had to watch it with subtitles i didn't even understand the joke the first time <laughs> that's how bad the joke was and like i love bad jokes people know this about me already and so it's just like a really nice callback and i just i'd love it when rachel just uses her sense of humor too me too i really like that as well and then I think just to wrap up the girls' scenes from this episode, they go back to the campfire. And despite how Martha saged it, I guess the vibes are still a little bit off because it's just a bit of a different vibe. Also, sage is such a weird way to say... Sorry, just as a side note, I, I've been repeating it now too because that's what they said. But like, you would say smudged, smudged. it. She smudged it. I don't know why they say saged it, but it's a weird way to say it. And I've been trying to trouble... Anyways, but I guess it's just the way they said it. So I've been repeating it too. But anyways, smudged. They smudged it. Yeah, so they smudged it but the vibes are still a bit off but they found out it actually has nothing to do with the environment it's just marcus who they maybe light on fire but he seems to be okay of course in this scene leah is not here we see her kind of leaned up against the tree she has the benzos in her hand and she takes a number of them we're gonna get into it much more um next episode because i really want to talk about the girl's reaction to her suicide attempt there are a lot of ways that I am not in love with the way that it was handled, but I'm going to save that to talk about next season. Next season. Next season. <laughs> I'm going to save it to talk about it next episode. But I think it's like kind of there's this shift with the girls where Martha's saying it's going to be okay. We're all going to be okay. And then we're cutting over to Leah, who's kind of like isolated herself and is crying and is so upset. And like the thing that Martha's saying is so beautiful and like the ways that you know dot and rachel connected were so beautiful but it's like leah's pain to them is so unrecognizable so they don't know how to hold it or handle it the right way and they just kind of don't know what to do with it and like i just feel so much for like leah in this moment because she feels like such a problem and she feels kind of like she's never going to get a resolution. Fatten's upset with her. She may be upset Rachel. And she just put all this blame on her. And she just wants to stop feeling like that, right? And like, they like downplay what this actually was. Um, because it was actually really serious. And it's like tied to kind of this downward spiral that Leah has been going through. Well, and it's so interesting because when Martha talks about how we're all going to be okay, it's foreshadowing to some extent for her. Mm -hmm. But also, I think part of it is tied to losing her biggest ally to some extent in Fatten. I think you hit it the nail on the head when you said that no one really kind of understands it. Yeah. And so it makes it really hard to support her. And the person who understood it the best said, get it out of here, essentially. In contrast to what happens with Martha later and Tony really understanding that or Rachel, everyone really understanding that. And of course, people having their own, like Shelby and Dot having more intimate recent experiences with that level of grief, but being able to, again, like kind of really understand it in a way that they, they can't do that with Leah. The only other thing that we kind of have to talk about is the experiment. The experiment. Yeah. So I think we've woven in the experiment throughout, but just a couple of points on this. First, I think I'm pretty confident that the girls' experiment happens first, slightly. I think they overlap a little bit, but I think they start the girls first, yes. 
Which I think means that when Leah does find the footage, it might perhaps be like a live feed when she sees it in the bunker or not super old. The reason I say this is because when Gretchen is talking about admiring her beloved control group, she talks about how they lasted 34 days while the women lasted the full 50. And then Dean and Dan talk about how they're going to start processing the boys now. So if they've been there for 34 days, it means that the girls are probably already in the bunker yeah. and there's a little bit of staggering, whether that was intentional or not. But you think they're they're like kids. It's like schools out. There yeah. has to be some I think overlap. It, I think it's also, I've said this before. I don't think anyone's going back to school. I know. You always say that. <laughs> After this experience, no one is just going to head back to school. But I think there's that moment in season one where Gretchen says like all the boats are in use. And it's right when like everything's happening with Nora and Leah in the pit. And I do think that that's what the boats are in use for. That they're actually dropping the boys off. I think it's really interesting the conversation that Gretchen has with Dan and Dean in the office towards the beginning of the episode because she really has so much like she, she refers to the boys group as beloved um, because she's so excited that they failed <laughs> and it just it goes into this on this ongoing narrative throughout where like Gretchen went into this experiment with like she knew what she wanted to happen and so it makes you almost doubt every single choice that she makes because she wanted them to fail so badly she had her outcome in mind I mean there's a lot of ways that the experiment is compromised but that's like a huge one and that the person running it and making decisions has a vested interest in the boys failing right she also says one of my favorite lines, I think maybe that she's ever said ever, which is, you know, once we find out how we will wear the crown. It's beautiful. So Gretchen. I love that. But she also gives us one of those biblical references. She says, start with this little angel, meaning Roth. I want to know how he fell. I touched on this already. I think I might convince Rachel to let me do a segment on it eventually, which is sort of biblical references that exist throughout this show. Another really big one this episode is Henry says um, about their whereabouts, we're either lost, dead, or raptured. So coming back into that sense or that idea of purgatory, which is a big theme this season, of this island being an in-between place, a place of waiting. In particular, like the concept of a rapture is really interesting. You're looking at me like you don't know what that means. Um, the what it, what kind of like raptures are in stories? It's like this moment where where God kind of like lifts all the angels or all the good people up and leaves sort of like everyone who is like quote unquote a sinner. That's what we were worried about a couple of years ago, weren't we? Like, wasn't the world worried about that? <laughs> Were they? Yeah, there was like some sort of thing going around that like there was one like of a the movie. And yeah, a one book. of the yeah, but one of the days oh, was like going to be the like, rapture. Maybe. <laughs> so you're like, weren't we all worried? About I know that? nothing about religion. It's horrible. <laughs> um, but once again, it's like this concept of leaving people who have sort of like storied back histories in this like hell or purgatory or pseudo hell, right? That was like a really. Um, so it was a thing that was starting to emerge in season one. And I'm like ecstatic over the moon, super thrilled that like it's continued to exist in like season two. We hear it a little bit too with Gretchen at the end of the episode when she's with Devin. When she's talking to him, she kind of says this reference to the wages of sin. 
And so it's actually a direct reference to the Bible. There's like, there's a whole passage that goes with it. But basically the idea is like the wages of sin is death. But it talks about this balance between sin and grace and death and life. And so continuing that kind of sense of like binaries existing between the two and of binaries existing in these spaces and like what is like the cost of eternal salvation and what is the things that you need to do to get there so anyways like i said maybe rachel will let me do a whole thing on it um because i would be tickled but um (laughs) let's talk about Devin. (laughs) what a reveal yeah like we went back and forth i think uh in the podcast about is she actually a mother and i mean this whole thing is her children so we've confirmed that yeah, she also references it a couple times and i'm like you have a real flesh and blood child who is very upset at you right now yeah uh but that was like i mean they keep them coming there's some been some really good reveals at the end of the episodes this season and this one was an awesome one i think there's Two things I really want to talk about related to Devin and Gretchen. I want to take us back to episode 10 of season one. And the first one I want to talk about is that Gretchen talks to Nora about how places like this aren't meant for people like Devin. And it's so interesting that in this reveal, Gretchen says to him, hey, was it as miserable as you thought it would be? And Devin just basically walks by. He doesn't answer her and says it was infinitely more miserable than I ever could have imagined. And I cannot believe you willingly put me through it. Which is really interesting because it's a day in contrast to jail. But I think it also has a parallel to being in jail because Gretchen made him do a plea deal. But also, how did she get him out of jail? Right? Like, that's the last place that we left it is that she didn't expect the sentence to be as bad as it was when she made him plead guilty. And so I'm like, what the fuck, Gretchen? How did you get him out of jail? Only to punish him yourself. Well, and it's interesting because we do see later on that he boards the plane. He comes back after he shares some information with Ian. And he's one of the four people on that plane that is now fleeing. And I want to take us back to episode 10 again. Because when Gretchen is talking with Nora, she's saying that he was a good kid. And how she tried so hard with him. But she doesn't say that what he did to Quinn wasn't his responsibility. She says he was totally responsible and says that when it was his turn to dole it out, he jumped at the chance. What's interesting is when Devin talks back to it about Gretchen, he says that what she's doing is worse. I'm not sure if I disagree with that, but he says, you know what? I royally fucked up. I am a shitty kid who doesn't know enough about the world or myself not to ruin things every once in a while. And I live with that every day. A person is dead because of what I did. But you you do it by choice. And he ends it with saying, and it's not an accident. You planned this, you enjoy it. I might be a fuck up, but you're a fucking psychopath. So he still is thinking that what he did is an accident. So what's interesting about that is he still is saying that what he did was an accident and not accepting responsibility. And then he jumps at the chance at the end of the season to board the plane with Gretchen after he has done apologizing. And so I think my conclusion is that they're not so different, perhaps. Yeah, I think the tie between like a like a mother and child and probably there's also financial ties in there as well are like a little bit more complicated. I do think there is a difference in like what 
Devin did and what Gretchen is doing. Like Gretchen is like, oh yeah, I think like okay, <laughs> like a large a scale empire. like torture situation. Yes. People are losing hands and like people have died and like Devin is still like culpable and is like accountable to the things that he did. But there's a there's an element of like recklessness and like thoughtlessness and carelessness and and endangerment in Devin's stuff. Whereas like. Gretchen's is like a little bit more on the calculated side. So both culpable, but I do think there is a difference between the two. I also, something that I think is interesting. So if we go with this theory that the girls' island started first and then the boys' island started afterwards and, you know, Gretchen brought Devin in specifically to put him there and for him to basically act as a pseudo-Lynn, I think it's so interesting the difference in how he acted on the boys' island versus how the rest of the boys acted. So if you remember when Devin's on the island, he's yelling, he's shouting, he's swearing about his mother and how his mother made him go here and he never wanted to be here, which is so much better when you know he's just shouting about Gretchen. (laughs) But the rest of the boys don't really do that. They never really throw blame at other people for making them be there. They're a bit more upset about the situation, um, but there's also this weird sense of resignation. They're just like, well, this is where I am. On the other end, though, when the girls' plane crashed and when they're first on the island, there's a lot of that. Fatten's talking about her parents making her go there. Rachel's yelling at Nora, like, "Did you? T- what did you tell our parents to make us send you there? There's a lot more of external blame that the girls are doing. And so they're specifically lashing out against the people that caused them to be there. So I wonder, because they would have recordings of all of that, If Devin was told to act like that on the boys' island, to specifically throw out external blame, because that's what they saw from the girls' island, which presumably is how they assumed that people would react, except it stood out so much because none of the other boys reacted like that. I think that's awesome. And I think think it's it's great because it's it's a theory that extends the show. They were so careful about what they did and didn't give away in season one about Devin to the point where we weren't really sure if it was true. And then now they've been so careful with like preserving the narrative, but now he's a part of that island journey. I think there's going to be more to that. I hope there's going to be more to that piece in season three. There has to be. He's on the plane with Gretchen. He's going wherever Gretchen's going. That brings us to the end of like the, the, the recap, the recap scene discussion portion. Like we said, uh, what we wanted to do next was just share some season two overall reactions. I don't know if you want to kick us off, Rachel. Yeah, I think briefly being in season two of a podcast is like so freeing in so many respects. There's a lot less nerves on our end. And we're a lot more relaxed about it, I would say, too. I think that it kind of shows already in our episode because we're just telling you all the things we're really excited about. (laughs) Because we are really excited. We love this show. And having a baseline of, you know, eight or ten hours of content from season one that we didn't have when we went through season one, to be able to interpret, you know, eight or ten hours of new content is just so much more fun, even if that time is sometimes unfortunately split out of favor of the girls. I think my underlying sentiment is that I like a lot of the things that they did this season. I love seeing new duos. Some of the character arcs I just absolutely loved. 
but the introduction of new characters, I didn't find it as much detracted away from the girls because I think the girls still got a lot of their own time because there weren't the girls' backstories. A lot of the time on the girls focused on them and on their relationships. So I don't feel like girl time as a collective was lost. But I certainly felt like some of that background character development was lost. And more than that, the lack of the research part of it, I felt like we didn't spend enough time to some extent with Gretchen and other members of the research team and on the experiment side of things. And I just felt in parts the pacing was, was off. But that being said, some things we feel really excited about. I did not have Ben Folds on my oh, like no. bingo card for season we two, like, unfortunately. I wish I did. Um, there were some pure moments of absolute delight. We watched it a couple of times together, just the two of us, before we even checked social media or engaged with folks. Because a bottom line, we're married people to each other first, what? and fans second, and podcasters third. And so it's just been such a special opportunity just for us to be able to connect about this again and then of course now be talking to you folks about it so i think my overall reaction is quite positive there's so much that i'm really excited about and i can't wait to go through it with everybody what are your thoughts honey a lot of my feelings are are similar to you i think overall i really felt the loss of the two episodes um, which I know is nothing to do with like the Wilds creators or writers or showrunners and is more than likely a decision that was made on Amazon's part. But I did really feel the, the loss of two hours of content, basically. And so that was a little bit hard. Um, there are moments of season two that I loved just as much or even some of them more than season one. And there are moments for me that that fell a little bit short of where I was hoping things would go. And so I, I always try to like keep in mind when I'm doing this that I think that season, I know it has its flaws, but I do think that season one is like a near perfect season of television. <laughs> I mean, there's campiness and there's jokes and there's silliness, but like regardless of all those things, it holds like a very special place in my heart, especially because it's like the first time Rachel and I had ever podcast. And so we like made something out of it too and stuff. So I, I have a I have very special feels and no matter what, I don't think anyone, anything would have ever lived up to those special feels. But yeah, there's, there's some, I have some sort of like mixed feelings about different elements. I came in a little bit with a little bit of trepidation about the boys and like the screen time that was being taken away from the girls. I would say like I connected probably with the boys more than I thought I did. And there's, there's lots that like I love about them and I love about their stories. A bit more than Rachel, I felt that the girls needed a little bit more time because there were stories that just we didn't get to explore. Like Dot in particular, I felt like we didn't really get to deep dive into her character as much as I would have liked. But I also think hats off to the showrunners because like they did the best that they could. Like I actually really liked um, a lot of the combo backstories for the boys. I think some were used better than others. Um, so like Ivan and Kieran's I'll always say was like, I mean, when we get to episode six, <laughs> I'm not kidding when I say like, I cried like nine times that episode and only like three of them were because of Martha. <laughs> but I was just, uh, I cried a lot that episode. And so there were moments like that, that really, really hit. But then there were other bits, and I'm sure we'll talk about them through the podcast, that maybe didn't land or resonate as much with me. But I think overall, 
it was a strong season. It was a strong follow-up. There were so many great kind of like aha moments throughout it, whether it was the David reveal, whether it was the Nora reveal. There were just these moments that that got you excited. Um, I like jumped off my seat when Nora came on the screen. I was like yelling. <laughs> yeah, so there were there were still these like really good moments. There was like they did a really good job in episode 10 of like creating this like new structure where like you don't know where they're going and stuff like that. But I think like I always have like a little bit of like heart feels for for the girls. And so like I always want more from them. But I will always say that like what they gave us was fantastic, was incredibly powerful. I was blown away by all the girl scenes and equally like impressed by like what they did with the boys island. Um, It's a hard thing because like sometimes I'm like I wanted more from the girls and I wanted more for the boys. But I'm also just sitting here being like there are constraints around making a TV show, around time. And I try to be cognizant of those things too. So I think I'm still like, I'm still a little bit early in my feels about it. And so I'm still kind of processing and thinking about it. But I am like excited for like the depth of stuff we're going to have to talk about this season. So no, I think that's, I think that's great. And I think, you know, something we really both struggled with was recording this first episode, because especially towards the end of season two, when we were talking about some of our later special episodes, we had watched the season like, you know, close to 20 times. Oh, season one. Yeah. Yeah. And so we like knew it like the back of our hand. And and so uh, I think we've watched We've watched it through twice, and then we've watched episode one five times. Yeah, I think so. Um, but we're still like a little bit, uh, a little bit new to the season and the content and our thoughts and our theories. And yeah, all right. I think with that, we're gonna head to quote of the week. Yeah. Um, so if you don't remember, because we wouldn't have done it for all of our post-season episodes, we each pick a quote of the week that was our favorite quote from that episode, uh, and then we share them with you. So I don't know if you want to kick us off first, Rachel? So my quote is actually from Shelby, and it's when she's talking to Tony about what God would say in this situation. And she says, be grateful for the good. It's here to help us survive the rest. And I think that's just like, I just love the quote because I find it really beautiful. I find that searching of herself and her faith and trying to reconcile that really beautiful. It's also kind of to some extent how I feel about the whole season. It's like be grateful for so many of the good parts that helps us survive some of the parts that we found confusing or really hard or the parts that kind of took away from what we wanted to see happen of the girls and the research and the other journeys. Uh, but I just think it's a, it's a really, really beautiful quote and that is why it's my quote of the week uh, my quote of the week is <laughs> oh you went a different direction <laughs> but sometimes this happens with quote of the week um okie dokie <laughs> uh my quote though uh from fatten is you take your delusions and you take your theories and you bury them why did you laugh at that <laughs> I I just think because you picked such like a beautiful, like uplifting kind of like quote. And then like I picked this like really charged emotion between Fatten and Leah. I think there's like so much in there. I think it guides and directs Leah's journey this whole season. Mm -hmm. It's this pivotal moment between the two of them. I think there's a lot of symbolism in the idea of burying something, um, both with a lot of like the burial stuff that happens on the island, also with the pit, um, but also with this idea of resurrection that keeps coming up and like, how do you resurrect these ideas and bring them back? But it's also one of those things where Fatten says this and it comes full circle by the end with Fatten then 
kind of investigating Nora and Nora's journal. And so it's like a darkish line, but like it was my kind of like quote of the week because I think it like speaks to something so much bigger that's happening as a part of the show. So I think that takes us to our next segment, which is Deserted Island Partner of the Week. Allie, can you remind me the criteria of this distinguished award? (laughs) To do this, I had to like re-listen to an old episode of the podcast to specifically like hear the criteria again and write it out. Um, and Don't I undermine our criteria <laughs> by being like, I had to re-listen. This is, this is in stone. Um, and so in particular, number four, I'm like, this is a joke that only I find funny and I feel like no one else laughs at, but that's okay. Um, so just as a reminder about what this is about, it's about deciding who would we want to be our partner? Who would we want to be stuck with on a deserted island? The criteria that we use is who kept everyone alive? Who kept everyone sane? Who was the island's MVP and who best embodied Destiny's Child Survivor? So usually we do a one, two, three, go, right? We do. I'm excited. I thought long and hard about it. I know my person. I know my person. All right. So one, two, three, go. You got it. All right. One, One, two, two, three, three, Fatten. Why Fatten? She came in too hard. All right. So here is why Fatten. Um... I actually had dot jotted down too. I think you mean you had dot dotted down. I had had dot dotted down. I had originally written dot and fatten down and then was like debating between the two of them. But honestly, like I was just like impressed with fatten this whole episode. I think like you see her like 50 times doing stuff throughout the episode, whether it's carrying wood, helping Martha, corralling Leah. Like she's like in the woods helping them move the camp. She's just like, She's just running around doing shit in a, like a very realized way that I always wanted Fatten to do. And she's doing both like the caring aspects of people and like the actual physical like kind of like tasks that need to be done. And she's directing people and tasking people. And I really like went into that, you know, who do I want with me on an island? And that that kind of like idea of like keeping everybody alive to a certain degree, she helps keep Leah sane. I mean, she really pushes her at one moment, but she does try to, like, you know, bring her back from some of the theorizing that Leah has going on. And I just, you know what? I just think she best embodied Desi's child survivor, and Fatten's the person that I think deserves it. Why do you think Dot? I just think, like, I don't want to be Dot default, but I think it's like Dot is always the default. So mm. anyone has to live up to the threshold of Dot for me honestly we gave her a deserted island partner of the season last year we should rename it in her honor i'm just gonna propose that should just be like who's dot's best person yeah this like and it's like dot is honor like uh, like always an honorable mention but i just think that like dot again you just see her caring for people caring for rachel in particular i thought was very very important there's also um i encourage you all to watch at one point when they're on the island dot is in the background but she's like brushing, brushing marcus, marcus off it's she like didn't very forget confusing. about marcus she was brushing him yeah she was she just like it's like happening in the background but she just like has like a brush and is brushing him off you're like what is she doing but like i think like while i do think dot had a really strong episode i can concede to fatten because i do think the part with martha was really important about like easing the piece around Shoni and talking about it in such a way and yeah seeing her really realize her potential in leadership and just like lifting shit without complaining about it and doing things without complaining about it but going kind of above and beyond in that way I think is really important I do think she came on too strong with Leah 
But I also need to like bear in mind that like if this was actually a deserted island, that you would be Leah. And so if you think that Fatten would have helped you in that situation, then who am I to argue with your expertise? And so I'm happy to bestow this yeah, I was gonna come inaugural to, season two honor. Yeah, I was gonna come to your side and be like, well, Rachel, you know, she Dot did take care of Rachel and was kind to Rachel and stuff. That's my and... biggest reason, though. I feel like Fatten has more reasons. Yeah. And I wanna honor that. So we're gonna give it to Fatten? We're gonna give it to Fatten. I don't Fatten. Gonna get it again. Fatten, no. you are Deserted Island Partner of the Week for season two, episode one. <laughs> Woo! All right, so that brings us to the end of our episode then, team. Uh, I want to say thank you for joining us for this inaugural season two episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. We had so much fun uh, prepping and getting ready and recording it for you. Thanks for joining us. As always, please feel free to reach out to us over social media. Um, our Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram handles are in the description, as is our emails. As Rachel mentioned, we'll be back at you in about two weeks with our season two, episode two episode. We'll see you then. We'll see you then. Bye everyone. Bye everybody. Bye.